Uh, it, the, uh, we're, we're doing Thou Shalt Not Commit Adultery. Um, and um, I, I've asked all the elders to be praying for something. So for some reason uh, this morning, starting about 8 o'clock, I uh, started feeling a tremendous amount of fear. And uh, that's not typically normal for me, especially usually because I get excited. I, I like you people. I don't feel like you hate me, so I think we're good. But uh, just a lot of fear. And I'm talking like fear, fear. The kind that's just you can't quite get your hands around it. You start, And um, it wasn't until right as the service was starting that I thought, we're talking about like some of the most challenging, essential areas of us as a culture and as people, like sexuality, purity. And I just, and suddenly hit me. And I'm embarrassed that it took me this long to even think about it. But, but Satan hates this. I mean, he, he, is, he is bound and determined to twist and to bend and to break us from the, in our areas of, of sexual purity, you know, sexual, of, our, of our sexual identity. I mean, is there, a more, is there a more charged dynamic and reality in our culture right now? And, and it feels like to say the words, thou shalt not commit adultery, feel like this, like, this Puritan-esque old thing that's like, okay, well, can we nuance this a little bit? And, and I, I don't just feel that like in the culture, I feel like within the church, like, okay, we just need to get through this one. And I think some of what I'm, I'm feeling is the magnitude of what is at stake here for us as people. And that's true collectively, but it's really true individually. Like Satan hates your marriage. Satan hates your sexuality. He wants to destroy you. He wants to ruin your life. He wants to burn down your home and your family and your future. That he's bent on that. And, and I think what's hitting me this morning, and sorry, this is all live, it's not in my notes, is just the fact that like he's after. He's after that kind of destruction. And God is inviting us towards something deeply good. He's not withholding from us. These Ten Commandments are not something that can try to make us as small as possible. He has something good for you. He has something good for me. And he wants to protect us, and he wants to lead us, and he wants to invite us into something that we have not been a part of before, maybe, or currently being marred from. Like, if you're in bondage this morning, God wants freedom for you. I know it. I know it. So... We're going to shift around and shift some of my notes around. We're just going to go with what I got here. So um, I'm going to go straight to Proverbs 7. Um, so if you, have, if you don't have a Bible, you're going to need a Bible this morning. Uh, we're going to go to Proverbs chapter 7. If you have a, a Bible, grab it. If not, we'll hand you one. Um, Proverbs was written by, um, song, by, by Song of Solomon. No, it was not. Um, it was written by Solomon, um, who was endowed by particular wisdom from God. And one of the things that... Um, that he guides us into is what does it mean to live wisely, to live skillfully? And one of the things that God gave Solomon was the ability to see the world as it was and to understand and interpret it in ways that, well, that most of us didn't, that we just, most people at the time were just living and walking and not thinking about it from the perspective of how God designed it and God intended it. And so he captures things in Proverbs that are beautiful and powerful and sometimes overwhelming. And, and I don't know... How about this? When you say the words, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Or don't, do not commit adultery. It feels like this thing that's static. And it's not. It's actually multidimensional, multifaceted. But what, what, what Solomon does in, in Proverbs chapter 7 is uh, he gives us like a reality show version of what that, that little verse and that prohibition and that guidance gives us. So, um, so read with me. Uh, not with me, but follow along as I read in um, Proverbs chapter 7. I'm going to have to get glasses. Uh, okay. Um, what is... The world is falling apart. Um, all right, hear God's word. 
My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablets of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister and call insight your intimate friend to keep you from the forbidden woman from the adulteress with her smooth words. For at the window of my house, I have looked out and through my lattice, and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths a young man lacking sense, passing along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness, and behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows, so now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linen from Egyptian linen, and I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till morning. Let us delight ourselves with love. For my husband is not at home. He has gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him. At full moon, he will come home. With much seductive speech, she persuades him. With her smooth talk, she compels him. All at once, he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, my son, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she led low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to shale to the dead, going down to the chambers of death. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, the way this, um, this proverb is laid out, you have, this, you have Solomon talking to his son and talking to us. And by the way, yes, the, the fool is young, um, but any man or woman can be a fool at whatever age. And so he gives this compelling um, a plea. And, this, and I think what's beautiful is if you can hear this as the plea of God for you, this is what he's saying. He's saying, he's saying keep and store up and bind and, and guard and engrave upon yourself and take wisdom to be, to be your sibling, to have your same last name. Don't divorce yourself from wisdom. The father's wisdom is at home and it's contrasted to these, the feet of the woman who's out in the street. And he's saying, this is the way to life. It reminds me of, of Moses. Hey, I lay before you today life and death, and I urge you, I plead with you, choose life. You do understand this is the greatest lie that Satan has told us, right? That God doesn't want life for you. He wants death for you. He wants to squeeze and hold you in. 
Scripture screams, no, 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 no. God has life for you. He has life for you. And this is what the plea of the Father is. Keep my commands and live. After that, that introduction and that call, Solomon then moves to, to tell us a story, to tell us a drama. It literally feels like a reality show at this point. In verses 7 through 9, we see the first character, which is this young, this young fool, this foolish man. And uh, ladies, do the work of putting yourself as the foolish woman, and men, do the work of putting yourself as the adulterous man, okay? Um, but there's this young fool. So what do, what do we see about him? Well, in verse 7, who is he? Well, he's, he's a youth without judgment. He's gullible. He's devoid of sense and understanding. He's not a thoughtful person. Everything's fine. Don't even worry. Eh, it's going to be all right. Whatever's going to be fine. Where is he? Well, we see the description of what, he's, what, is, what is his path of life look like, and it's one that has a trajectory toward, that skirts towards, that finds itself near the doorway of this woman, of this adulteress. He's, in a sense, he's, his entire trajectory of life is finding himself circling, circling death, circling her. And I find it fascinating that Solomon even tells us when. Not just where, but when. When is it? What does it say? Twilight. Dark. In the evening. And I told my kids, I just tell my students when I was a youth pastor, nothing good happens after midnight. We all agree with that? So who is this fool? Well, one of the, the clearest definitions of what a fool is, is a fool is someone who doesn't realize that they're a fool. A fool is someone who doesn't know that the reality is is that they don't know, they don't understand, and they don't see. And this fool in particular has some of the common features which many of us have, and that is that he's a, a fool because he, he thinks that he's better, that he's immune from it. The reality of sexual brokenness doesn't affect me. I'm, I'm above that. This is the self-righteous fool. Or, or it's the fool that, uh, that, that, that thinks that he or she is, is stronger than this. Yeah, no, I understand. That's true for other people. But like this doesn't actually uh, affect me directly. And, and if it does, like I can handle it. Like trust me, I, I got this. I can handle this. I can peer over the edge of things in ways that other people can't. This is the self-reliant fool. Or it's the one who doesn't think that sexual sin is that big of a deal. Which is frankly just an agreement with current culture, right? That the greater crime is for anyone in any possible way to say that there is a way in which sexual relationships are supposed to manifest and play themselves out. That's the greatest crime. I mean, that's the worst thing to say, to remove you from the opportunity to express yourself, especially to magnify the reality of who you are through your sexual desires. I mean, that's criminal. That is criminal. And God doesn't apologize about this. He's saying, no, there is a way. There is a way, and it is not that way. Don't be a fool. This is the self-justifying fool who says, it's not that big of a deal. And by the way, it's a private thing. It only affects me. It doesn't really affect others. And consequently, the fool is the one who takes no precaution, which is one of the biggest reasons why Solomon wrote Proverbs was to say, think well, my son, my daughter. Proverbs actually 27 says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple, the fool, goes on and suffers for it. So this young fool, instead of finding himself choosing a path or a process in which he would take precautions, no, he instead he, he's a fool who stands on the doorstep of temptation in the dark and all alone. This is a fool. And so I ask you this morning, in what ways are you, what ways and what patterns of your life are you, 
Are you embracing or are you, are you acting and living like a fool? The second character emerges starting in verse 10. It's the wayward woman. We see a few different significant things about her. Let me reread that 10 to, 10 to 13. It says, And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward. Her feet do not stay at home, now in the street, now in the market. And at every corner, she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him. So here's what we learn about this woman. First of all, is that um, this is the, the adulteress, and you understand this is a personification of the reality that there is this waywardness of heart, this false intimacy promise. And one of the things that, that, that we see in her is that she's a false person. These verses, they scream to us that there's this false person in her. There's a false beauty about her. It says she's dressed like a prostitute. She's putting out something that looks like something, like beauty, but it's actually not beauty to be offered. It's actually beauty to, in order to snare, in order to consume. Her body and her heart are not beautiful for giving, they are beautiful for taking. She also has false confidence. There's this this false sense of like, oh, here's someone who really, I mean, there's this brazen strength. She's loud. She's able to drown out all other voices that are going on, particularly the voice of wisdom. And And then you see there's this sense of her coming and grabbing. She takes hold of him, it says. She kisses him, and then she looks him in the face, and she makes these huge promises to him. What it looks like is that she's come to offer strength. What she's actually come to do is to take strength, to take beauty. She also has false availability. In verse 12, it says that she's present everywhere, it seems. Now in the street, now in the market, she's like a little bit everywhere. Temptation feels like it's everywhere, that's for sure. And if everywhere is for everyone, then it's likely for no one. Uh, C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, this is brilliant, and I This is what he says. He says, uh, I think we have a quote, yeah. Um, He says, we use a most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling in the streets that he wants a woman. Strictly speaking, a woman is just what he does not want. He wants a pleasure for which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus. The basic difference between love and lust is that lust wants a man or a woman in general. Love desires instead to be committed to a particular man or woman. So there's false availability because it says later on that that many are the throngs. He's not that special. And there's a false intent. Everything, all the movement appears to be for, but at the end of the day it says that she's a, she's, Lying in wait. There's the idea of preying upon, of being prepared to devour. And I don't know about you, I read this passage and I look at the young fool kind of meandering through the streets and I listen to the description of this woman and it does not feel like a fair fight. Does it? And we already know who's going to win this story. We've seen it on TV, but, but the scriptures came way before that and here it is. The fight seems already lost. Not only is there a false sense of who she is, but she makes all these false promises, which is exactly what what deception looks like. There's this false sense of piety you see in verse 14 when she says, I've gone, I've offered my sacrifice. You can trust me. I've made my vows. I've paid my vows. All is well now. 
There's this pseudo-spirituality, this upside-down hypocrisy. But also, there's this false sense of exclusivity. And I think this is one of the pieces that was so significant as I, as I thought through. You look in verse 15, and she says, So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. The level of, of exclusivity, the idea, I mean... If I say right now, hey, I see you, how special do you feel? Well, not super special. There's another 180, 90 people in here that are going like, yeah, you see me too. I don't see how that's a big deal. But if, but if at later on, and I say, hey, listen, I saw you this morning. I saw your tears or I saw some sadness or I saw, well, suddenly you feel seen and known, right? Do you suddenly feel valuable and you suddenly see that the reality of like, hey, wait a minute. I, I mean, I matter. Do you hear the words? I see you. I mean, this is true, and this is one of the this is one of the greatest lies of whether it's whether it's adultery itself, right? The act of adultery of, of choosing someone extramaritally or, or, or before marriage, or or or, or pornography or, or, or fantasy novels or any of these things. What they're saying is, I see you. You're seen. You're special. You. The adulteress has a false exclusivity, and many are her victims. And that false exclusivity is naturally connected to a false intimacy. And of course, there's a very clear, um, there's a pageantry of what she suddenly promises him. You and I are about to have this incredibly intimate moment. And, and, and she uses all kinds of things. delight, filled with love. There's a sense of this unhurried, free, luxurious ecstasy that's about to unfold for him. The idea that this casual, illicit sex will satisfy fully, but don't worry about some form of committed, covenanted relationship. That's not what we're trying to do here. She even says it in verse 18. She says, let us take our fill of love. And I was struck by that word, take. Covenant, married love is not about taking It's about covenant and love. That's what lust looks like. Covenant and love is a sacrificial giving. It's a vulnerable receiving. That, that's, that's what, and the, and the longer you go, the, the more time that unfolds, the more there's the opportunity for that to manifest itself. It is not the taking of love. Uh, C.S. Lewis, I think, captures this really well because, because the spectrum, and, and Steve did a great job the last week of walking us through the spectrum of when Matthew, we're going to get to that in a minute, when um, in Matthew 5, when Jesus talks about, hey, you know, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with the intent to lust, you've committed adultery in your heart. Remember, Steve talked about last week with murder and anger that, that murder is, is not the same as anger, okay? They're not the same thing. But that, like you use the Mississippi, that the, the anger is the headwaters to the mighty Mississippi of murder. And you find yourself at the base, it's because you found yourself starting at the headwaters. And I think there's no clearer way to explain this very same reality, that to look and to lust intently is the headwaters to what unfolds itself in a violation and a breaking of the covenant, an ignoring of God's purpose. And so, so we have the kind of the headwaters, so we're having to talk through the headwaters all the way down to the mighty Mississippi here, but... This is what C.S. Lewis describes it as when he talks about the world of sexual fantasy. He talks about it as being a harem 
of imaginary brides. And this harem, once admitted into the heart and mind, works against a man ever getting out and really uniting with a real woman or a real man. For the harem is always accessible, always subservient, calls for no sacrifice or adjustments, and can be endowed with erotic and psychological attributes which no real woman can rival or man can rival. In the end, they become merely the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. That last line, they become the medium through which he increasingly adores himself. You see, that, that's, that's the, the magnitude of the power of what sin looks like. We've talked about it a hundred times, that sin is being curved in on yourself, right? It, it's, it's being so turned inwardly that all of life is about me. And so the, the purpose of what it looks like for God to bring us to a place of holiness in life is he says, no, you don't have to look at yourself. I got you. I paid you. So now you don't have to look at you. You don't have to take care of yourself constantly. You can actually look and say, okay. It is well with my soul. I am loved. I am accepted. I am free. I am forgiven. Okay, if that's the case, well, then now in covenant relationship, I can be part, my, my role, my gift is to give, to be able to sacrifice, to love out of sacrifice and unto vulnerability. Lust divorces sexual thrill, which there should be sexual thrill. Love divorces sexual thrill from trust and commitment. That's what it does. We get high on the risk. One of the things that uh, if she finishes with in verse 19 and 20 is, um, is basically she's saying, listen, my husband's gone. It's going to be fine. There can be secrecy and, uh, and there can be um, a sense of security. He's not going to be back all as well, which we all know that illicit sexual reality is far more powerful than that which is actually up open to all, which is why you'll see affairs happen. And as long as they're illicit, they survive. And then suddenly it comes to light and you know what? The, they break up. Like it doesn't survive because half of the power was the fact that it was against the rules. The fact that it was dangerous. The fact that you could be caught. It's false. It's a false security. And it's a... So the conclusion, um, and, and we know this very well, we've seen it in ourselves, we've seen it in others, and I think there are no more tragic words in this entire passage than the words, all at once he followed her. Because right now, if you're thinking about some random dude and some story that's over there that, that Solomon taught, it doesn't matter, and you can disconnect yourself from it. But when you're talking about real people, we're talking about real lives, real marriages, real souls, and you say the words, all at once he followed her. And Solomon follows, he says, her road is to death. That's where the road leads. All at once, he followed her. In that sense that there's, and unfortunately, having had too many conversations with too many people, there's a reality of, I don't know what happened. I just suddenly found myself there. That's not how it works. The whole headwaters function is always at play. All at once, because of all the other things, suddenly death shows up. And so Solomon finishes by, by warning. He says, listen to your wise father. If you follow her, you will die. She is the grave. She is the chamber of death. None of what she promised you is true. And many have gone this road and have perished stronger than you. Don't be a fool. 
So how do we keep from being a fool? Well, there's two things, and there, one is there are wise strategies. There's wise ways of living and making decisions and ordering your life so that you order your life in conjunction with and along the path of what God has for you to guard you, protect you, and lead you to life. And then, of course, there's the how. So let's talk about wise strategies first. Uh, scripture gets very clear on these things. The first, the wisest and best, clearest strategy is from 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Flee from sexual immorality. So the first wise counsel, the first wise strategy is flee. Get out, get out, get out. This is one of those times where a white flag is a really good thing. It's the, the Joseph leaving his coat in Potiphar's wife's hand. Like, it's, it's, it's get out. Most of us are so, we so believe we are better and stronger and wiser than we really are. We do not give nearly enough respect to the reality of our own flesh. That doesn't mean that we don't respect the reality of the transformed heart we have in Christ Jesus. But, but the magnitude of what your flesh will do to you and how you will lie to yourself is phenomenal. So run and flee. That's why it doesn't even say stand and fight. It actually says flee, run. It is too powerful And it's, an, it's a, and really the fleeing is, is against passivity. Uh, the way um, Martin Luther says, he says, you know, you can't stop birds from flying over your head, but you can keep them from building a nest in your hair. I think that's just a great picture. Yeah, you can't, you can't control all things. You can't, there are people that are going to come into your life. There are people who will come out and go after you. There are situations where things are just going to emerge, but you can choose to not let them build a nest in your hair. Therefore, flee. So why strategies first is to flee. The second is, is to fight with. Gather people who will fight together with you. And, and this is particularly important in, in, in this context. Live honestly with small things before they become big things. We all read the book of the little white lie when we were kids, right? Remember, like it grows bigger and bigger. Do you guys not read that book? Is that a French thing? <laughs> There's a French book about white lies. <laughs> Scratch illustration. Um, <laughs> live honestly with small things. Some of you have small things going on in your life that you're playing around, that you're teasing with. Talk about the small things with other people who love you, and they'll tell you whether or not they're small things and what they're actually, what the trajectory of those things are. And, that, and this, this is the way I always say it, and the guys that I'm connected with, I, I use this word like, turn yourself in. What I mean by that is not, I, I don't mean like I've done something bad and I want to turn myself in. I actually mean, hey, here's how I operate. I'm going to take you behind the curtain and show you how it works internally for me and how most likely I'm going to relate to you. Talk about the systems for how you hide. Talk about how you lie or how you don't lie. Invite people behind the curtain so that they know your systems, not just what's going to come out of your mouth. They would ask the questions behind the questions more effectively. Avoid isolation and independence. Um, many of you guys know our, 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 my history, and um, we talked about this before in, in, in sermon, but um, one of the things that's true for me now is like, I just don't, I, I'm as much as possible never alone in isolated independent places. I just avoid that at all costs. So I went and did a wedding out in Colorado a few years ago, and like, I brought someone with me. They stayed with me in the hotel. We hung out. We had a great time. It was like an incredible experience to have, to have this guy Dave with me. He was such a good friend. Um, but like, I mean, this has been true. I mean, I've had Travis stay with me probably about four times while Becky's been out of town. I'm like, hey, come over and stay with me. And so we hang out. 
Is it because I'm, a, because I'm so weak? And so, no. It's because I know that independence and loneliness and whatever are powerful things in my world and in my life. And I don't want to be around them. I know what they do. Avoid isolation and independence. That's true, of course, whether it's internet accountability software. Invite other people to fight with you and for you. Husbands, invite your wives to fight for you. Wives, invite your husbands to fight for you. Fight together. By the way, trust your spouse. If your spouse is like, that guy, I don't know. There's something about him. I think he's got an angle or something with you. Or, or that woman, she seems to be particularly kind of comfortable with you. That's making me uncomfortable. Don't blow that off. Don't dismiss that. God's given you each other to protect each other. 1 Corinthians 7 says that. You've been given to one another to fight for what is good and right. Not only do we fight with, but we, but we fight for. And this is, this is probably one of the newer development dynamics I've been thinking about of what it means to live holy lives, not unto just my own holiness and my own transformation, but because of the impact and the magnitude of the dynamic it affects in the community around me. Naturally, we automatically think, hey, this really matters for your family. Be wise. Don't destroy your family. Don't, don't damage other people. Don't get all numb, but, but it's true more broadly from a communal standpoint. Is it not true that if I am numbed out right now, how am I supposed to be a conduit of the grace of God to you? If I can't listen or hear him because I'm so disconnected from my heart because I'm indulging in some kind of area of fantasy or, well, how, where, how is God going to work in and through me? I had a friend of mine, I actually remember looking at him and saying this very thing. I was like, dude, I need you to be able to fight for me. Like, I need you. I can't have you over here going like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really affect anybody. It affects me. Because you can't hear God, you can't understand your own heart, and therefore you can't love me well. Fight for me, please. Fight for me by fighting for your own heart. So we fight for our family and our community. They are the benefactors of the battle. And that's a, that's a new concept I haven't really thought about before. Husbands and wife, fight for, um, fight for your sexual intimacy through working hard for regular engagement, intentional, sacrificial, sexual connection. It is good for you. It protects you. God gave it to you for joy and delight and for protection. It is, as Keller says, I think is the best explanation, is that sex is the covenant renewal ceremony. That it is, in a sense, exactly what communion is to us believers. We refresh and renew the commitment and the covenant that we made to one another when we stood in front of everyone and said, you can count on me, I'll be for you and only for you. So fight for your community, fight for your husband, fight for your family. And... Um, and you just can't avoid uh, uh, Matthew 5 uh, when Jesus talks about this. He says it's so straightforward, I just need to, to read it to you, and you need to let all the weight of it hit you. Like, really, really listen to it, what it means for you. It's Matthew 5, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in her heart. In his heart, Sorry. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. 
And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Now, I need to make something uh, importantly clear here before we talk about the, the bulk of it. Sexual desire is not sin. Now, you may be like, that's obvious. That has not been an obvious reality within the church for a long time. That it's primarily something to be avoided, something to be afraid of. It, it, it is something to be respected, but sexual desire is not sin. What Jesus said is it, it illicit desire, a desire that actually goes in, in, a, in, a, in a direction where it says, I see you as beautiful or I see you as attractive and drawing. Now, what I do with that from that moment on, am I going to roll that over the palate of my heart? Am I going to begin to fantasize it with it is so that I can take it for myself? Well, now I've stepped into exactly what Jesus is talking about. But when you find yourself having thoughts or desires that emerge, that is God saying you're human. That's you being human. And you were made for sexual desire. Otherwise, a whole bunch of stuff in scripture doesn't make any sense and doesn't fit. So that's the, the I want to say as a disclaimer, that lustful intent is the key distinctive here between what God is, what Jesus is saying and so, sex is good, sexual desire is good. Uh, because sexual desire is a, like a fire, I think it's the best way of articulating it. It's like a fire. There's plenty of songs that talk about it that way, so I think we're in good. It's like a fire, and a fire is awesome. You can like make a, 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 like an incredible meal with it. You can warm yourself on a cold night, like last night, by a fire, or it can burn your house down. That's just, it's, it's that straightforward, it's that simple, it's that obvious, and we all know that. And that's why Jesus said, because that's the case, therefore, Jesus says, perfectly innocent and good things may have to be sacrificed by you for the sake of vigilance from the sin. Um, which this just feels like that's against the rules today, like, there's kind of the ascetic perspective, right? Like try to cut out as many things as possible and be someone who has no life or whatever. Or there's the indulgence thing. Don't give me any rules or any boundaries. But what Jesus is saying is saying that what looks what is true for you, Dan, is not going to be the same thing for you, Joel. It's not going to be the same for you, Jonathan. Every, it's going to look differently, which is why he says eye and hand. It, it is all kinds of perspective. It's not a prescriptive dynamic. It's the question of what's true for you. And what's guaranteed in this is, this is what I love about this passage, that what it guarantees is that it leaves no one out. Because either you literally are so shut down sexually that you think you're never at risk of anything, which that has other questions, or somewhere, somehow, you need to have some wisdom about what needs to not exist in your life. And what we naturally run to is like, okay, well, what, what are you trying to take away from me? What, what is God trying to take away from me? What is he trying? I, I mean, do you think I can at least... I mean, that's, that's, the, that's, the, like, that's the movement of the heart. That's where we all naturally go. And I just want to say, like, don't worry about that. What's good for you? Like, what is actually good for your soul? Before God, what, what can you and what should you and what should you not? And what this automatically means, this is why it's like the, the, the wisdom is be radical, is, is that you're going to stand out. Because you're most likely going to have to put some parameters around your world and around your life that other people are going to go like, why are you doing that? And you're going to have to go like, well, trying to cut off my hand. And then you get to talk about the Bible. See, this is a natural missional opportunity here. 
But do you understand that this is what God invites us into? And he, and he, he paints a very, I mean, this is Jesus's, by the way. You know, this is why I love that it's Jesus saying this and not like, okay, go like, well, Moses, you know, he was really serious about the law. Like, this is Jesus. He's like, yeah, lop your fingers, lop your hand off. Like, take out your eye. It may be, it, it probably, especially if it's gone for a season and has become destructive in your life, it's going to cost you. You're going to have to have some confession, some discussion, some removal. And Jesus is saying, good, you understand how serious this is. You're wanting to choose life. You're trying to walk away from a path, a path of death. So you may need to confess. Some of you may need to join like a celebrate recovery group or Christian addiction group. Some of you may need to change jobs, quit your job, transfer departments. The life that follows Christ is that radical. Remember our first, the first week of the catechism? We belong to him. Your sexuality, your purity, your sexual, they belong to him. And nothing is off the table. So how? These are, these are principles, some wisdom wise principles of how to think and how to live. But, um, but how do we do that? Wise strategies, are, they are essential, but they're not going to motivate. Are you feeling motivated? No, you're probably, if the only motivation you probably have at this point is like, okay, you know what? That is probably a little further than it should go. I, I can cut that off. That's probably what's happening. You're, you're trying to like figure out what you can and should do. And that's good. That's actually, I think that's a natural and good response to it, but it won't last. And what I mean by that is the, the transformative effect of God in your heart is never a management of your desires and sin patterns. It never works. It doesn't last. It doesn't sustain, and it certainly doesn't change you. You just, you'll be back. And some of you know that. You know you'll be back. So what is the hope? Well, uh, Piper says it this way. I think this is a great way to jump in. He says, um, the fire of lust's pleasures must be fought with the fire of God's pleasures. If we try to fight the fire of lust with prohibitions and threats alone, even the terrible warnings of Jesus we just saw, we will fail. This is Piper who like, that dude doesn't like failure. We must fight it with a massive promise of superior happiness. We must Swallow up the little flicker of lust's pleasure in the conflagration of holy satisfaction. That's the invitation. And, and I, it's that we must find ourselves satisfied and delighted and pursuing and seeing and understanding and knowing God in a way that's actually going to cause our hearts to come awake and aflame and worth cutting an arm off because he's so beautiful. That's actually your only hope, which maybe you're sitting here going like, yeah, I don't, I don't see how in the world that's going to happen. I really, as, as Becky and I talked some this week, one of the things that, that, that hit me is there's really two different probably dynamics of, of folks in the room right now. There's just two different barriers, I would say, to that kind of holy pursuing satisfaction in Christ alone that are probably emerging in your minds and hearts. And if there's a third, let me know later. Um, the first is, um, and I think the gospel addresses both of these, which I think is really good news. Hence the name. Um, the first is, uh, I'm disillusioned or cynical. I have desires for intimacy in my marriage or in my singleness that are not being met. And honestly, God just isn't enough most of the time. So satisfying these desires myself feels like the only realistic 
the only realistic way to survive. And, and this is the natural, and, and I think this is an honest statement. And this, is, this is obviously broader than even the, the unmet sexual desires. This is broader in our context. But there are many of the struggle here. It's like, um, and one of the things that hit me as Becky and I were talking, she talked about some of this, and I thought, you know, I think what we naturally do is we go, um, so let's say if you're single here and you're like, hey, I would, I'm, I'm with you. I'd love to be protected by having sex with other people. Can, can I have a husband or can I have a wife? Like, I'm, I'm game. I, I'll buy what you're selling. But there's no man. There's no woman right now. So, well, thanks for no thanks. But how does that help me? Or you have now been married and you're in your union or in your relationship. You're like, yeah, this is not at all. There's no protection here. There's not, this is not what we thought. So what do you do with the reality of unmet desires? What do you currently do with them? What are you currently doing with the unmet reality of the desires that you have? Well, one of the things that's very clear is that when we ask for something from God and we long for something from God and he's not meeting them, something's going on there. And where we struggle is that we want, the desire is here, we want answer to be here. And I don't know all of why that is, but that's not how God works all the time. Does he work that way sometimes? Absolutely. But here's what feels very clear to me. He is not holding out on you. You have unmet desires and he is not holding out on you. And they are good and he is not holding out on you. The only way that you're ever going to deal with your unmet sexual desires is if you about to say something and be like, could this be more cliche, is if you give those actual desires to God. Does that sound nice and Christian cliche? Give your desires to God. But actually think about it. If you, if you, if you actually take the things that you're longing for and say, God, I don't, I'm not experiencing this being met. I don't know that you can without it being this particular way, but I'm going to give them to you. And, and here's, the, I think, the way in which there's two different ways of giving our desires to God. Well, I don't think one of us even giving them to God. And uh, actually, an author named uh, John White writes it this way. He says, there's a big difference between fasting and deprivation. Uh, John Newton says, everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. Let me read that again. Everything is necessary that God sends our way. Nothing can be necessary that he withholds. And so that's why John White's inviting us to say, there's a, there's a difference between fasting and deprivation. In fasting, I go, I'm choosing, I'm making a decision to accept the reality of what is before me. And though it's painful, because, you know, a fast or a diet, but I'm choosing it. I'm choosing to step towards it. Deprivation is when you're put in a cage and someone feeds you whenever they feel like it and you're feeling starvation and everything in you rages against it. And some of you are in or have been in seasons where you're raging. You're in deprivation, not in fasting. And all I can tell you is this, is I don't know how God wants to give to, to have your desire, desires be reborn it's possible that it will be in, in giving you a husband and a wife. It's possible that it will be in having your marriage transformed so that there's a, there's a different dynamic to how God meets you in your sexual desires. But it's very possible that it'll be in a totally other way. He will give rebirth to them in, in a sense, a deeper sense of purity and power in your heart and life. And none of you want that. 
I know, it's, I, none of us want that. I don't want more character, I want more relief. Right? I mean, you're not signing up for character, you're signing up for it to work. And it's painful to have unmet desires sit out there day after day, month after month, and God is saying, I understand. And I am doing something with you. He's inviting you into a fast. Nothing that he's withholding from you is necessary. And trusting him that that's the case is true faith. God says, give your desires to me, die to them, and trust that though that through me they will be reborn. Lament with me, yes. Ask for me, ask of me, absolutely. Long with me, yes, do so. But trust me. The other is um, the other barrier to having satisfaction in God uh, in the area of our sexual desires is uh, guilt. It's the fact that because of what you've done, what you're doing, what you keep doing, um, that you've either been the fool or you've been the adulteress, you've maybe been both, um, and you just can't shake it. You can't shake it today. You're having to think through, am I worthy enough to even come and take the elements? And you're living under the condemnation and guilt of of, of sexual sin. And you're like, I, I, I don't know what to do with it. And the gospel speaks straight into that. It says that, um, it says that, that Jesus was the one who, um, though he was perfect, was led down a path he didn't want to go. And he was marred and, and bruised. And he had a disciple with a face come up to him and deny him and he was irrevocably caught into the snare of death and Jesus knew exactly where he was going. He was not meandering and he went there for you. He was led like an ox to the slaughter. He went down to death for you. And when you find yourself taking your sexual past or your current sexual sin and elevating it above the magnitude of the cross, you're trying to outstandard God and it is his it, it will always be his kindness that leads you to repentance it, it has to be because if anywhere in here you're trying to earn or make promises to God that you're going to now this is it will not work but to the degree in which you allow his transformative grace to pour itself over your heart time after time week after week and say God change me I cannot do this myself some of what the invitation of this morning is is like are you done are you done trying to be good? Are you done trying to make your life work through illicit sexual behavior? Because God has another way for you, and he's inviting you straight to it, and he's made it possible without even blinking, but by, by offering the ultimate sacrifice in himself. It cost him infinitely for this, and he did it for you. And he gives you total access. We can be a transformed people here. And it won't happen overnight. But it is the very purpose for which you were created. It's the very purpose for why he puts you together with your husband or with your wife. It's the very purpose for which he has you single currently. Is that he wants to make you more like himself. Which is why he offered himself. It's all what he's, what he's inviting you towards. 
And so this morning, as we come and take the elements, I do invite you, like the scripture says in 1 Corinthians, examine yourself. Take stock of your heart, of your mind, of your life. Take stock of it. And then come. Come and receive and say, I cannot be changed without you. I must receive the grace that you have for me. I give you my desires. I give you the things that may never be. Will you give them rebirth somehow? I trust you. So let me pray and then we'll come forward. Father, we are more desperate for you than we realize. And we are far more hopeless without you than we realize. Remake us, I pray. Transform us. Lord, I thank you that uh, you are not aimless in your purposes for us. That you, like a good father, say, I have life for you. Father, help us to walk in that. To step towards that life, towards you as our good father. We pray this with our hope firmly planted in Christ Jesus as the only hope. Make us holy, Father. Purify our hearts that we may find our satisfaction in you. We pray this because of and in Christ's name. Amen. If you belong to Christ Jesus, this meal is for you. So come and receive the elements.